The ride down the dirt road was rough. We'd rented a truck, a shoddy, albeit reliable one according to the agency, as a car would be unable to handle the washed out terrain. Even though it was only Father Lucas and myself, the cab still felt unnecessarily cramped, and the briefcases didn't help. It was below freezing outside, and the heater was barely making a difference. We had dressed in layers and were prepared for it, but the sun would be setting soon and it would be even colder. I hoped that we would finish what we came to do and be back in the warm again before that happened. I had known Lucas for the better part of a decade. We met in my second year of university. We had enrolled in a parapsychology class for an elective and introduced ourselves to each other on the first day. We talked more frequently after class as the semester rolled by and soon we were firm friends. I was studying psychology while he was pursuing a religious sciences degree. We talked about our interest in the paranormal, me taking a purely academic stance and Lucas a spiritual one. There wasn't any semblance of the classically overdone science versus religion clash to our talks, and we had a genuine respect for each other's works and beliefs. After graduation, we stayed in touch and wrote each other with updates about our education, careers, personal lives. He had been ordained shortly after graduation and traveled the world on mission trips, sending postcards from exotic locales I had never heard of. One day I checked the mail to find a letter from him. He was excited to tell me that he had successfully performed his first solo exorcism. This was something he had been wanting for a long time, as he felt that it was his calling in life. Fast forward a few years to a call from Lucas. He'd been home for a while and would mostly travel to perform exorcisms by request. We had met up several times for coffee to trade stories, and he told me of the exorcisms that he was a part of. He said that he had looked evil in the face and banished it, and those were the times that he felt closest to God. I was fascinated by these stories he told and would mentally diagnose the possessed based on the most common causes of their symptoms, whether it was speaking in tongues or complete personality changes. He would always finish by asking me my thoughts and how I would treat a patient like that if they were under my care. I would tell him what I had worked out and what medications or procedures I would prescribe, and he would nod thoughtfully. The last time we met for coffee, he told me the latest story, and I gave him my take on it. He listened and smiled. He told me he would like to take me to an exorcism just once, since being there might change the way I think. I was surprised by the offer, but quickly accepted. It would make a fascinating case study. It wasn't long before the building loomed from the darkness. The senior care facility was a repurposed motel, one of many unfortunate casualties of population growth in town industry. Once a successful business in a convenient location, it stood abandoned at the end of an overgrown lane. Disuse and disrepair had taken their toll over the years. It was eventually sold and set unused for some time before being remodeled just enough to pass inspection and bring it up to code, and was reopened as a nursing home. There was a sadness about a mostly forgotten building being used to house mostly forgotten people. We parked at the entrance, gathered our things, braced for the cold, and headed inside. We were greeted by a short, middle-aged woman sitting behind a desk, wearing a set of scrubs with a name tag that read Lorraine. We told her that we were there by appointment, and Lucas explained our situation. She listened, then asked us to wait while she made a call. She left to a back room, and I casually looked around to study my surroundings. 
The walls were a yellowing cream color, with the faux wood paneling on the lower third that met with a baseboard setting on top of a short, dark gray carpet. Generic landscape pictures adorned the room, part of the previous decor, I assumed. The windows slid sideways to open, and the frames were a different brown than the paneling. The look definitely brought to mind a motel of days past, but the smell was something else, part elderly, part industrial cleaner. I'd only been to a nursing home once before, as a teenager, to visit a great aunt who suffered from dementia and required care that her family had neither time nor funds for. The thing I remembered most from the trip was the smell, and it was the same here. I wondered if they all had the same smell. Lucas and I exchanged glances, and I gestured generally around the room, eyebrows raised with an amused expression. He smiled. Lorraine returned and asked us to follow her. She went through the right side door, us trailing close behind. I looked at Lucas and saw his smile had turned into a look of focus and determination as we walked. The facility was a single story with two wings angled out from the center office and had a small recreational area that joined the wings just on the other side. Each wing had 20 rooms, 10 on each side of the hallway. The doors were closed, likely from a curfew. Our footsteps were muffled by the carpet. It was quiet. We stopped at door B-16, and Lorraine turned the knob. It wouldn't be quiet for long. The man in the bed, Ezra Horowitz, was in his late 80s, bald with bushy white eyebrows and liver spots. He was tall and lean, if he had been standing, he would have been a head taller than me. He was Polish, soft-spoken by all accounts, at least until recently. Lucas had told me about his life, about the internment camps and his eventual liberation. He had been a baker, running the family business when his father no longer could. The night the SS came, he and his fiancée were loaded into different trucks, and he never saw her again. He lived to spite them, the best he could do in that horrible time. Among the stories he had told his family of being in the camps, one specifically caught Lucas's attention when recalled by Ezra's granddaughter, Shelby. Ezra had been in his bed one night and was lying awake, wishing for the pain to stop long enough for him to fall asleep. Suddenly the door opened and the lights came on. Before he had time to understand what was happening, guards had pulled him from his bed and were shoving gun barrels into his back, telling him to walk. He obliged, as much as it pained him, and they led him away from the bunkhouse. He was taken to a truck, thrown in the back, and driven to an area he had never seen before. A small building jutting out from the hillside, with a single light and door on the front. They threw him off the truck, and more guards came from the building, dragging him to the door. He was pleading with them to bring him back to his bed, but they were silent. They opened the door and took him in, a long hallway led deeper into the hill, and they pushed him to keep walking. He could only imagine what they were going to do to him there, or why he was singled out. An officer met them outside of a room, and the guard stayed in the hallway while Ezra was taken to a chair and strapped in. He asked, why him? What did he do? What were they going to do to him? The officer, whom Ezra never got his name, simply said that Ezra had won the lottery. They drew from all the prisoners' numbers, and he was the lucky winner. He then left the room, and there were loud bangs as the door was shut and locked. 
he looked up and saw a metal door on the opposite wall. There was a buzzing noise, then a click and bang, and the door slid open. Out stepped another prisoner, one that was unfamiliar to him. She was swaying as she walked, clothes in tatters, various gashes and bruises scattered across her skin, and he called out to her but she didn't answer. She stopped in front of him and leaned to his face. She said, Be not afraid of darkness, for it has already found you, and put her hands on his cheeks. She pulled his face to hers and kissed him. He said that it felt as if she had placed a brand inside his skull the moment their lips touched. He screamed in agony and tore away from her. She stepped back, then turned and walked back into the doorway where she came from. Through the pain, he watched her as the door slid shut again. He could swear that right before it shut, she was staring at him, and a man moved into view standing behind her and put his hand on her shoulder. He swears that man was Satan. He was led back to his bunk and told that if he ever spoke of what happened, they would kill everyone else in the bunkhouse. Several months later, he was freed by the Alliance and left the country, immigrated to the United States. They had taken everything from him and left no reason for him to stay, so he put an ocean between his old life and his new one. The details weren't important beyond that. He worked in a few different places before opening his own shop years later, and he started a family shortly after that. But I can only imagine the things that he had seen that he had endured. A part of me didn't really want to know the specifics. He'd been through so much that he couldn't fully process it. That kind of trauma never truly leaves, and you have to carry it every day. Yet here he was, a survivor. I had never met him before, but I immediately had great respect for him. Shelby, the one who had contacted the church, was at his bedside holding his hand. She was lean like him, with long black hair and tired brown eyes. She'd married into a Catholic family and converted, but she had grown close to her grandfather as she grew up and as an adult continued to visit him after his wife died until he needed more help than she could provide. They talked it over and decided a nursing home would be for the best. She would continue to visit him there every week. She'd offer to pay for it, but he sternly refused. He wasn't rich by any means, but he had enough saved up to take care of himself for a while. This place was chosen despite being farther away since it was cheap and would allow his savings to last longer. He had moved in a few years prior, and true to her word, Shelby made the trip every week. Everything was fine up until about four months ago. Shelby explained that her visits had become increasingly stranger, and she was worried about Ezra's mental health. It started small, with him getting agitated over seemingly nothing for short periods of time. After a week, it had progressed into full-blown shouting before he came back to his senses and apologized. She was upset about the outbursts, sure, but she was more upset that he was advancing in dementia and wasn't going to be the same person she grew up around. The nurses had changed his medication to curb his mood swings, but there was still an uneasy distance in his eyes, and he wasn't himself more and more. She had tried to prepare herself for this over the years, but 
thinking about how to handle a situation and being in it are completely different things. The man was becoming a stranger and she couldn't help him anymore. Three weeks ago, the event happened that made her write to the church and they connected her with Lucas. It started as a normal visit, disregarding his occasional coldness. Idle chat, cautiously testing if his memories were intact that day. There was a moment of clarity where she believed he truly recognized her and she was in tears. They talked for a while before he elapsed and she excused herself to the bathroom. She knew that there would be a day soon where he wouldn't recognize her anymore and would revert to this bitter old man. It was almost more than she could stand. She washed her face and left the bathroom ready to make her excuse to leave. Ezra was laid straight out, mouth wide open. His eyes were milky white, no pupils, staring at the ceiling. The bedclothes were crumpled on the floor, his arms and legs outstretched. It took her a second to register that he was floating above the bed. She tried to scream, but for a moment the air left her and she couldn't breathe. It seemed that all the air in the room was pulled into the center around Ezra. Her purse and its contents, loose bits of paper, medicine bottles, small random items just rushed towards him like they were being pulled in by a vacuum. His head snapped to the side and he faced her, and black bile dripped out of the side of his mouth. He moved his lips and his voice came out in a deep whisper. Shelby. The air rushed away from him with explosive force, sending debris everywhere and shattering the window. He fell back to the bed, gasping and writhing, eyes back to normal. The scream that had been taken from her returned and echoed down the hallway outside. Nurses rushed in a few moments later. Shelby was in hysterics and couldn't explain what had happened. To the nurses, it appeared that someone had made a mess of the room and broke the window. Given Azra's recent behavior, they were convinced that he had an episode and it had turned violent, and it had shocked Shelby. They escorted her outside and called an ambulance, and tended to Ezra while they waited. He was unconscious and appeared to be sleeping. By the time Shelby could speak about what she saw, she knew that she couldn't tell anyone. No one would believe her. Worst case scenario is that she wouldn't be allowed back in and would have to go to a psychiatrist while her grandfather would get more medications to keep him sedated. She wouldn't be allowed to see him again. That wouldn't be for the best, she decided. She knew what she saw, and she also knew that the church would be the only place she could go to that would take her seriously. Lorraine held the door open. When we walked into the room, Shelby looked up at us with a mixture of concern and despair. The door closed behind us, Lorraine leaving to go back to the front desk. We introduced ourselves and set our briefcases down by a dresser. When Lucas said who he was, she immediately perked up and stood to shake his hand. Lucas referred to me as an unbiased witness, and Shelby and I shook hands and exchanged names. You wouldn't need to be a psychologist to see that she was under serious stress and probably hadn't had a good night's rest in several weeks. As I unpacked the notebooks and various things from our cases, Lucas talked to her. Her husband had stayed home with their son, and she hadn't told him what had happened or what was happening today. 
She told no one, in fact, and when the nurses assumed Ezra had become violent, she didn't correct them. She simply said that she wanted someone from the church to be with her for this visit, to help her cope with everything, and guide her through this difficult time. Her voice was shaky, and she kept glancing back at Ezra, who was sound asleep. I finished unpacking and sat in a corner chair, notebook and pen in hand. I made a few quick notes and nodded to Lucas that I was set. He moved to the other side of the bed, grabbing his book and crucifix as he passed the dresser. I straightened in my chair. I had only seen exorcism from the movies and television, and here one was taking place in front of my eyes. I was strangely excited, like finally sitting in the seat of a carnival ride after waiting in line. Shelby continued holding Ezra's hand while Lucas opened the book to a marked passage, crucifix hanging off his wrist on a chain. He ran his fingers over the page and started reading in a low, strong voice. I couldn't make out what he was saying since I was never versed in Latin. He spoke with a certain conviction and cadence that can only come from experience. Shelby was looking intently at Ezra, holding his hand and softly rubbing his shoulder. He was still sleeping heavily, as one would under sedation. Lucas read the passage and turned the page. He was a few lines in when Shelby said, He's burning up. I saw dark patches forming on Ezra's shirt around his armpits, and his forehead and temples had started to glisten. He shifted slightly from side to side, brow furrowed, as if trying to get comfortable. Lucas read louder. I was beginning to feel warm myself, and I could see them sweating as well. I didn't remember it being as hot as it was when we first came in. Lucas read for another minute before the lights flickered. It startled Shelby and myself, and I could see that she was holding back tears when she looked over her shoulder at the light switch. Lucas had the same demeanor, and his voice rose to the volume of a stern lecturer. I wiped the sweat away from my face and dried my hand on my pants. The lights flickered again. It occurred to me for a brief moment that this whole thing was an elaborate prank, set up by Lucas to scare me into believing the supernatural. Shelby's story, Ezra's story, all fake. Nurses outside controlling the thermostat and lights. This made sense, and I was thinking about how I would tell Lucas once this was over that he almost had me when the light bulbs popped and burned out. Shelby gave a startled yelp, and I almost did too. It was dark, very dark, with no light coming from underneath the door. Maybe the whole building had lost power? I fumbled over to the dresser and found the flashlight Lucas had packed. Clicking it on at the foot of the bed, I quickly shined it over towards Shelby. She squinted, and I saw her breathing was ragged. She was no longer holding Ezra's hand and was instead hugging herself. Lucas was still speaking, uninterrupted. He said that it was important that once the exorcism started, that he had to keep going. It occurred to me that he had memorized the passages and didn't need the light necessarily to continue. I shined the light over to him and saw him running his fingers over the page, eyes closed. I went back to Shelby and she was looking towards me. I said, it's okay, it's, it's just the power, to reassure her, and move the light back towards Lucas. 
I stopped halfway. Ezra was no longer sleeping. He was sitting straight up, limp arms down his sides, his head turned towards Shelby, his eyes completely white, and mouth, no tongue, with a seething mass of black bile dripping out. I gasped and Shelby turned. She saw her grandfather mere inches away from her face and screamed a wild, panic scream. She shoved away from the bed and ran behind me, tripping over the chair in the dark. My throat was dry and my eyes were watering. Ezra's head turned and followed Shelby as she ran, and I didn't take the light off of him. I suddenly felt very terrified. Lucas was reading louder now, his voice and our breathing the only sounds in the room. Part of my brain wanted me to run, but another part was still holding on to hope that this was all staged to make me look like an idiot. I winced as Shelby gripped my arm tightly. Ezra was still staring straight at us, at her, without making a sound. Inky drops spattered from his mouth onto his chest. Through the dark I could see Lucas, one hand holding the crucifix outward, the other holding the now-closed book to his chest. He was repeating the same phrase, focused on Ezra. He took a step and Ezra turned his head in his direction. I held the light as still as I could. It was even hotter in the room. Breathing was a chore. My knees were weak. I rooted to one spot and clenched my fist. Shelby squeezed my arm harder and I barely noticed. As Lucas continued, Ezra made a coughing, barking noise, his back arching and falling. It was a raspy, ripping sound, and after a few coughs, it turned into gagging and heaving. His face never changed. With one large heave, a mass, roughly the size of my fist, was expelled from his mouth and landed at Lucas's feet with a sickening wet thud. Lucas didn't so much as glance down and chanted louder, practically shouting at this point. I wanted to vomit. He put the book in one pocket, reached into another, and withdrew a small silver flask. He flicked the lid off with his thumb and flung the liquid towards Ezra, almost as a form of punctuation for the phrase he was repeating. As soon as it made contact with his skin, it was like dropping water into a hot pan. White smoke billowed and Ezra belted out a sound of pain, retching and shaking back and forth. What seemed like multiple voices at once were coming out of his mouth, mixed with guttural sounds that I couldn't even imagine. More animal than man, I thought in horror. I didn't know what was keeping him in the bed since he had no restraints, but I hoped that he stayed there. Shelby was digging her fingers into my shoulder. Lucas raised the crucifix and yelled at the top of his lungs the last part of the phrase. He brought it down directly onto Ezra's chest. What happened next is something I can only describe as a sonic boom. A shockwave slammed into all of us, sending us off our feet. I hit the wall narrowly missing Shelby and fell to the floor on my chest with the wind knocked out of me. I lay there in a daze with a loud ringing in my ears. A hand reached down and grabbed my arm, helping me up. I staggered to my feet, gasping for air. The lights were back on. Lucas was standing there, panting, a split above his cheek and a trail of blood out the corner of his mouth. He had already helped Shelby up. She was leaning against the wall, holding her side. 
I looked at the bed and saw Ezra lying asleep once again. I looked at Lucas and back to the bed, and he gave a calm nod. It was done. He walked over to Shelby and talked to her, explained that whatever was in there was gone now, and that he would be himself when he woke up. She thanked him profusely through her tears. We stood in silence for a while, catching our breath, processing what had just happened. I noticed Lucas cradling his arm and saw that his wrist had been broken, the hand that he had held the crucifix with. We cleaned up the room, which, luckily for us, the window was boarded and hadn't been replaced yet, so there was no broken glass. The bile was gone, as was the mass that he coughed up. We tried making ourselves presentable and went to the door. We shook Shelby's hand one last time and left. The drive back was cold, but it felt much better after the heat in that room. It was silent until we reached the hospital, where it took an eternity for them to set and splint his wrist. They told him to return tomorrow for the cast and gave him some pain medication, and a short while later we were back at the hotel. We were both drained and went to bed. We talked about it in the morning over breakfast. I asked every question I had, and he answered what he could. He wanted to know if I was still a skeptic for the supernatural. I told him no, and that I also wouldn't be accepting any more offers he had. He smiled. We paid the bill, checked out, and went home. <laughs>